how would you describe the quality of the godliness in your life that nobody else sees, that nobody else knows about? How godly are you in the secret places? How godly are you in the quiet places? How, how godly are you when you're in your room by yourself? How godly are you when you're at home alone? How godly are you when you're in your car alone? When you're playing golf alone? When you're at work alone? What does your godliness look like there? I have found in my ministry that it's a common occurrence that when children grow up, and graduate and move out of the home, I found it to be a common occurrence that very often the parents of those children will become much more disengaged with the church. That the parents of the children were, would, would bring them every week, they would involve them every week, they would push them every week, they would um, encourage them every week. And so they would serve in the church and they would be faithful to the church and they would work in the church. But then when those children grow older, when those children graduate, when they move out, it's almost as though they, the parents seem to feel like, Phew, finally finished. The thing about church that I've also found, though, is that it tends to be a microcosm of the Christian life. That certainly we don't believe, and we're, I'm actually going to preach on that this morning, we don't believe that by coming to church you're saved. We don't believe that by, by coming to church you, you in some way... Um, win God's approval in some unique way. No, we don't believe that. But what we also do believe is that coming to church is, is an image of us pursuing God, an image of us going after Him. And so when that happens in the life of a family, when that happens in the life of two parents, here's essentially what they've said. I went to church to set an example for my family. I went to church to set an example for my children. I went to church so that my children would know that God was an important priority. I went to church so that my children would see by my faithfulness that they too should take their children to church. But then when they withdraw, what are they saying? But I went for my kids, not for the Lord. I delight in being a good parent, not in being godly. That I want my, parent, my, my, my children to know that it's important, but truthfully, I don't myself delight in the Lord enough to continue along this journey. In Matthew chapter 6, this is the type of hypocrisy that Jesus is coming after. In Matthew chapter 6, this is the type of hypocrisy that Jesus is coming after. Jesus is coming after the type of hypocrisy that says, as long as everybody else thinks that I'm good, as long as I'm, I'm setting a good example, as long as, as other people believe that I'm godly, as long as, as I can make my, my guilt feel better, as long as I can help myself in those public ways and in those, those areas where my children see me and where my wife sees me or my husband sees me or my friends see me or my pastor sees me, as long as I'm good in those areas, then really... I must be okay overall. What I do otherwise is irrelevant. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 as we continue. This morning is going to be a little bit different um, than what we normally do. Typically we preach sequentially through books uh, or through verses. And so what we're going to do this morning though is we're going to preach verses 5 and 6, 16 through 18. And then we're going to come back next week and preach verses 17 or 7 through 15. It's going to be kind of an aside. And so you'll see how the, the two... Uh, passages that we're going to preach this morning, they connect really well together and how Jesus almost takes like a deep breath and says, all right, and while I'm talking about that, let me go a little bit deeper, okay? And so next week, we're going to take that aside, the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to go a little bit deeper. But this morning, we're going to read all the way through verses 5 
through 18. So would you stand with me, if you're able, as we read God's word together. It says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. And so what we have is the beginning of chapter 6 goes really back to what we talked about last week. Jesus is expounding this broad principle that he's introduced to us in verse 1. In verse 1, what did he say? Um, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus is unpacking this. Last week he talked about this uh, in the context of giving. This week he's talking about this in the context of, of praying and in fasting. So the sweeping principle that Jesus is teaching is this, is that it's possible for us to do good things. It's possible for us to even do godly things, apparently godly things, obviously godly things, even biblical things in a way that is sinful. That it's possible for us to do good things, it's possible for us to do godly things in a sinful way. So that pertains to giving, we can give in a way that is sinful, we're going to see that we can pray in a way that is sinful, and we can fast in a way that is sinful. But we can extrapolate that principle out as much as we want and apply it to virtually any area in our lives and see that virtually every area of our life, regardless of the good that is done, that we can do that good in a bad way. That we can do that good in a sinful way. And so what Jesus is doing here is utterly remarkable. Because what Jesus is doing is Jesus is explaining what will make his disciples, his followers, his church distinct from every other world religion. What Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6 is essentially universal across world religions. What's he talking about? He says, give to the needy, almsgiving, right? Give to the needy, pray. Good luck finding a a, uh, religion that doesn't talk about meditation, that doesn't talk about prayer. And fasting. Virtually every main uh, major religion, world religion throughout human history has had those three components. As a matter of fact, what Jesus is talking about, the three that he's talking about are three of the five pillars of Islam. That three of the five pillars that make up Islam, that, that all of the Islamic faith is based upon, are almsgiving, praying, and fasting. And so Jesus is really getting to the heart of this. 
And he's getting to the heart of, okay, if, if all of these other religions do this, if all of these other religions give to the needy, if all of these other religions uh, pray, if all of these other religions fast, what makes me different? What makes, what makes the Christian faith unique? What makes my disciples distinct? What we're going to see Jesus teach, I believe, is actually anti-Islam, anti-Orthodox uh, Judaism in the modern context, anti-Buddhism, anti-Hinduism. Because what Jesus is going to teach us and what Jesus is teaching us is Jesus is teaching us that his disciples and their godliness and their piety is defined in a completely different way, in a completely opposite way of virtually every other major religion. Here's what I mean by that. Virtually every religion, ha though it has these same rituals, has a merit-based system, has a works-based system, has a system in which you do the right things, you, you have the externals, you have all of the externals, and if you have all of the externals right, if you behave the right ways, if you go to the right places, if you talk in the right ways, if you do the right rituals, if you give to the needy, if you pray, if you fast, if you do all of these things, then you'll win favor with God. You'll win salvation from God. You will win peace from God. Or you will be centered. Or you'll come back as not a lizard, but as a, I don't know, a horse or something. Like It'll be a, a more glorious reincarnation, right? That as long as you do the right things, as long as you do them well, as long as the externals in your life are sterling, as long as they are attractive, then you're covered. This is particularly true in Islam. And I, and I talk about Islam because it's, it is the... the the other primary religion in the world, the, the second largest, or the other, it may be the largest at this point, in the world. What do they teach? They teach that you've got to be good enough, and do good enough, and work hard enough, and fast enough, and pray enough, and be devout enough, and be, and be conservative enough, and be modest enough, and follow the Quran strictly enough. And if you do that, then maybe you will get in. That it's all works-based. That's why people strap on bombs and walk into schools and walk into uh, workplaces. That's why they get into airplanes and they crash them into towers. Why? Because unless they do that, they don't have certainty. Regardless of the good that they do, regardless of the assurance, if you were to ask the Muslim, if you were to ask someone that is a subscriber to the Islamic faith, how good do you have to be to go to heaven? You know what they tell you? We're really not sure. Really not sure. I'm not sure how good I have to be. I just know that I need to do as much good as possible. And hopefully, 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 when I stand before Allah, he will see the good that I've done and he will welcome me in. The exception being if they die in the holy war. Right? But the Christian faith is not like that. We're not talking about karma. We're talking about grace. We're not talking about works. We're talking about his work. Right? We're not talking about what you do, we're talking about what he has done and done for you. And so Jesus is saying, I, my disciples will be distinct. My disciples will be different because it won't be on the externals. It won't be based on what you see on the outside. It won't be based on your works. It won't be based on your merit. It won't be based on what you do, it will be based on who you are. It will be based on whether or not you have submitted and surrendered your life to me. It will be based upon whether or not you have given me your full self and that the Spirit of God has taken residence in you and begin to transform you from the inside out. Now don't mistake me, brothers and sisters. Some Christians take that and they manipulate it. And they twist it. 
And they take that teaching that, that God is, is based on the inside, that God is based on the internal, and they, they take that to mean, well, then it really doesn't matter what I do. That it really doesn't matter how I live. It really doesn't matter if I, if I have any true acts of godliness at all in my life. And that's not what Jesus is saying, is it? As a matter of fact, we know that's not what Jesus is saying because of the way he introduces each of the three things. He says, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. The assumption being that you would do those things. The difference with Jesus is, is that the reason that you do them, the motive of doing them. Is that they flow from who you are. The outward work flows from the inward heart, right? That the, the inward heart transformation has taken place. The, the spirit has transformed you and, and is reshaping you to the image of God. And because that has happened, because you have received grace, because you have received such a redemption, because you have received such a salvation, now you work that out into your life and those things are manifested in things like giving to the needy, in praying, and in fasting. This morning... There are some of you under the sound of my voice, and you were, your hope of salvation is the same as the Muslim. It's the same. Your hope is that you're good enough. Your hope is that you've worked hard enough. Your hope is that you've been honest enough. Your hope is that some way, somehow, you can just get there by being good enough. And I would ask you the same question I would ask any Islamic brother or sister in love. I would ask you, how good do you have to be? How good do you have to be? Because the Bible tells us that your righteousness next to God's holiness is like filthy rags. That none of us are good, not one of us. That all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so this morning I offer to you not karma. I offer to you not work harder. I offer to you not go more, not do more. I offer you come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to grace. Come to the one that transforms you from the inside out. Come to the one that sets you free from all this works-based stuff. This morning, evaluate your salvation. When you stand before the Lord, how will you stand before him? Will you stand before him like a Muslim? Will you stand before him like a pious Buddhist? Or will you stand before him covered in the righteousness of Jesus? And so Jesus takes this principle this morning and he moves into praying. And when he said, what does he say? He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they might be seen by others. So Jesus says, what we see in the hypocrites, what we, what we see in the lives of the Pharisees, what we see in them is they like to make sure that everybody else sees that they're praying. And in the Jewish custom of the day, we, we kind of see this really in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. He, he talks about how uh, the Jewish custom is to pray three times a day, particularly at the ninth hour. Uh, and then it, there was some flexibility within that, right? And so apparently what they would do is they had set times and these Pharisees would be walking down the streets or they would be on the street corner, or they might be in the synagogue or wherever they would be. You might be in mid-conversation with them and they would shut it off, Right? Because they've got to pray. This is God's time now, right? And so they would, they would shut all of that down. And they would say, oh God in heaven, hear your pious one. Hear your godly one. I love you so much that I will interrupt my life on your behalf. And they would pray out loud. And they would pray in this ostentatious way that essentially was saying, look how godly I am. Look at how good I am. Look at how devoted I am. Look at how committed I am. You see, the problem with the praying of the hypocrites the problem with the praying of the pharisees is that it was horizontal in nature 
that the primary audience of the uh, Pharisaic prayers were horizontal. Here's what I mean by that. They prayed not to a vertical audience, not to, not to God. They weren't seeking his face. They were praying for everybody else around them. They were praying so that everybody else could hear the, the eloquence of their words. They were praying so that everyone else could hear the, the soundness of their theology. They were praying so that everyone else would see the devotion of their hearts. They, would, they, were, they were praying for everybody else around them. So, so their, their audience was horizontal. They're, they were praying horizontally, not vertically. And I think that's the sin. That's how you pray in a way that is sinful. That's how you do what is, seems to be so obviously godly in a way that actually shames God and dishonors God and, and separates you from him. As you pray to him, or you pray in a way in which he is not your primary audience. You pray in such a way as to lift up everybody else and to reach out to everybody else to the neglect of God. Robbing God of his glory. Robbing God of your words. You know, we pray horizontally, don't we? We pray horizontally. Let me tell you how we do it. Even Christians, even as I've um, examined my life, I see this in my life. We get by our children's beds at night, and we think, my children need to see me pray. My children need to see me pray. And so we pray these nursery rhyme, cookie-cutter prayers we pray the same ones over and over and over. And I would ask us just to pause for a second and think about those times. Who is our audience in those moments? Is our audience our children? Or is our audience God himself? We bow our heads to bless our food at a restaurant or at the lunchroom table or at work. And we do that thinking other people need to see me pray. Other people need my example. Other people need to see the importance of, of thanking God for his provision. Other people need to see this. And it's a, it's a witness to the world. And so we pray mindlessly. Mindlessly. R- running through the same words we've said a thousand times. With, with, no, with no emphasis. With no, with no spirit leading in them. So that other people will see them. We pray in church or in Sunday school or in any of the environments that we have. And we pray and, and we're very articulate with our words. And we're, we're, we, we work to be very eloquent because we have to make sure that everybody understands that we're praying people. And that we're prayer warriors and that they're impressed by our words. And so we're praying for them. Or we refuse to pray in church. We refuse to pray in churches because why? We say, my words aren't eloquent enough for them. My words aren't good enough for them. I'm afraid that other people will hear me and that other people will think that I'm not godly enough. The problem with all of that, those ways of praying is that all of those are horizontal in nature. All of those are focused on the exterior. All of these are focused on other people. All of those, fine, as their primary audience, not God himself, not the one that has saved you, but the people that are listening, the people that are watching, the people that are seeing. Now it's important that your children watch you pray. And you should set a witness by blessing your food. But you should do it with an awareness, a distinct 
awareness that you are residing in the presence of God, that you are approaching the throne of God. There should be a healthy fear in your life, a healthy awe in your life as you approach his throne. And so don't teach your children nursery rhymes. Teach them to plead with heaven. Teach them to plead with God. Teach them to go after him. I believe that the reason that the majority of our prayer lives are so inept, the reason that there's such prayerlessness in our church and in our churches, the reason that most of us feel like prayer is a duty and not a delight, the reason most of us, when we pray, pray out of obligation and not out of joy, is that we have a gross misunderstanding of what it means that we live in the presence of God, that we have access, as Ephesians 2 says, through Christ to the throne room of the Father. That we can go to him, the one that, that gives good gifts, the one that gives satisfying gifts, contenting gifts. That we can go to him and we can plead with him and we can, we can be real with him and be raw with him and, and, and call on him to intervene into our lives. I think if we, if we really stopped for a second, and, and I think this is a good discipline for us to build into our prayer lives. That if we would stop for just a second and, and build into our lives an awareness that we would, before we go into our time of prayer, we would bring to remembrance who it is that we're talking to. Bring to remembrance who it is that we're approaching, who it is that, whose name we're calling on. I think it would restore the joy to our praying. I think it would drain the selfishness out of our praying. I think it would drain the powerlessness out of our praying. So who is it that we pray to? Think about this, brothers and sisters. You pray to a God that you don't have to convince to care for you. Think about that. You are praying to a God that you don't have to convince to care about your need. You are praying to a God that you don't have to convince to care about your concern, to care about your hurt, to care about your pain, to hear about your, uh, your insecurities, to care about your sin, to care about your gaps, to care about your family, to care about your marriage. You don't have to convince him to care for you. Jesus calls him what? He says, pray to your father, doesn't he? Pray to your father. Pray to your dad. Go to the one that has this intimacy with you, this, this, this longing for you, this, this abiding affection for you. Go to him. You're praying to the one that cares for you. Ephesians 1 says that those of us that are his children, those of us that have been adopted by his love, that he loved us before the foundation of the world. That before time existed, he loved you. Before Mars and Jupiter and Saturn existed, he loved you. Before you took your first breath, before you took your first whooping, he loved you. He loved you. He cared about you. He came after you in Christ. He came looking for you to save you, to deliver you because he loves you. And so he says, I'm anxious to hear from my children. I love you so much, I already know what you're going to say. I am so in control, I know what you need already. I so love you, I'm already shepherding your heart. But I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. I'm anxious to hear from you. I'm anxious to hear from your heart. I'm anxious to hear you speak. But not only is our God caring, but he is capable. He is capable. 
What good would it be if our God loved us uh, unconditionally but was impotent to do anything about it? What good would it be if we were to call on the name of the Lord and to call on him and and to plead with him and to, to, to beg him and him to say, man, I wish I could help you, but I just can't. I love you, but there's just nothing I can do for you. That's not the God we call on, brothers and sisters. We call on the architect of the universe, the designer of time. We call on the God that split the Red Seas and crushed the walls of Jericho. We call on the God that that saw us and so cared for us that he came here as a person and walked on water and rose from the dead. We call on the name of the God that is so omniscient that he doesn't just know the names of every one of the seven plus billion people that live right now, but of everyone that's lived before us and everyone that lives after us. And not only does he know our names, he knows the number of hairs on our heads, the number of days in our lives. We call on the one who, when we ask him, can respond. We call on the one that, at his discretion, or every resource of this universe, and the next, and the next, and the next. We call on the one that is so moved by love for us, so moved by concern for us, that he will respond, that he will, he will send, hold back all of, the, all of the angels of heaven so that we can be delivered. Brothers and sisters, our God is not just good. He is not just loving. He is capable. He is capable. Let us teach our children to pray to him. Let us teach our children to go after him. Let us teach our children what it means to plead with him. Let us teach our children what it means to to weep before him. Let us teach our children what it means to confess our sin to him. This was especially real for me this week. This week as I was preparing to preach this and wrestling with what prayer looks like in my life and the impotence of my own prayer life and the weakness of my own prayer life and the sense of duty that I often feel too. I had a friend who, they had a premature son about three years ago and it was just really hard on them. Led to a lot of difficulties, led to a lot of health issues, a lot of um, emotional issues, led to a lot of financial issues. It was difficult, and they had thought they didn't want to have children again. But the Lord delivered them, and he was good to them, and they were so faithful to him. And so the Lord moved them through all of that, and had shepherded them through all of that, and had loved them through all of that. And so they got pregnant again, and, and Megan and I immediately began praying, and beginning asking other people to pr- pray with us that, pray with us that this, this pregnancy would be so enjoyable for them. The other one was so hard. The other one was so scary. The, there was so much difficulty that was attached to that. Would you pr- pray, let's pray that God would see fit to, to let them just have this enjoyable pregnancy. And this week, she was 30 and a half weeks pregnant. Her blood pressure spikes, and they say, he's got to come right now. He's got to come right now. As I got word in my office, I had just finished studying that. You think God's not providential? I I had just finished typing what I just said to you on my computer. And as I began to pray, I began being overwhelmed that I was calling on a God that loved her infinitely more than I did. That was infinitely more concerned for her than I was. 
that wanted her good infinitely more than I did, that wanted her to thrive infinitely more than I did, that wanted their family to be good infinitely more than me. That when as I, as I called on his name, I didn't have to convince him to love her. I didn't have to convince him to want to help her. I didn't have to convince him to want there to be a thriving family. I didn't have to convince him of that. He already wanted it much more than me. But not only did he want it, he could do it. He could do it. So as I began to pray to the Lord, as I began to, to seek him and, 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 and just calling out, just saying out loud, Lord, I know you love her. I know you love him. I know you love this family. And so, God, I'm, I'm praying that you would see fit in your will, Lord, that you would, you would help everything to go well, that it would just be remarkable and miraculous and divine. And as hard as the other one was, Megan and I went and saw them on Friday. Um, and they had a peace you don't get here. That you don't, you don't get from trivial prayer. That you don't get from a Bible verse every now and then. That only the Lord can give you through the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, our God, He loves us. And He's capable. And He's anxious to hear from us. And so what does Jesus say? Jesus says, then retreat to your prayer closets. Go to them. Go, go to a room all by yourself. Go to a room where there's no Facebook. Go to a room where there's no internet access. Go to a room where there's no screens. Go to a room where there's no phones. Go to a room where there's no people. Go to a room where you can be all alone and seek the face of God there. Seek the face of God there. See, I think the reason that God, he tells us to go to a, a, a prayer closet or a prayer room is, is twofold. I think the first one is we need to go to a place where there's not distraction. We need to go to a place where we're not, we're not tempted to impress other people because other people aren't there. We need to go to a, a place where we're not tempted to, to speak in eloquent words or in or guarded words because it's just us and the Lord. We need to go to a place where it's just, we're just us and Him. I think the other reason is, is that we need to go to a place that's intimate. Go to a place that's intimate. You read the Psalms. Many of the Psalms are prayers, and they are raw. When I, when I would tell teenagers about them, I would say, these, these are rated R prayers. These are rated R prayers where, where they go before God and they say, God, I don't get it, man. I don't get it. I don't get what you're doing. I, don't, I feel like you've forsaken me. I know that you, you won't, but I just feel that way. I didn't need to say it. I'm angry, and I need you to hear it. I'm mad, and I need you to know it. I'm, 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 I'm disheartened and heartbroken, and I need you to know it. I need, just need to say it. I don't think you're coming through, and I need you to hear it. I need you to restore my faith. I need your help. I've sinned. I've sinned in a way that I don't want anybody else to know. And I just need you to, I need you to know it. I need to, I need to experience your grace. That's what we do in a prayer closet. You need a place where you can get alone with God and where you can just be raw with him. Where you can be raw with him. Where you can confess humiliating sin. Where... You can confess that stuff that you've refused to even acknowledge in your own life, but you know it's there. Where you can plead with God. Where you can tell him where you're struggling. Where you can tell him where you're not trusting him. Where you can tell him where you even maybe believe that he's forsaken, that where you're angry. You need that. And Jesus says when you do, the Father that he will hear you. He's in secret too. Just as you go to the, uh, the prayer closet, he's there. 
You don't have to pray in front of 300 people for him to hear you, for him to acknowledge you. He's there. He's in the quiet place, so go there. Jesus continues what he's talking about by talking about fasting. And the reason that I've combined these this week was, one, I didn't have time to do it last week. And two, because they're, they're, they're so interconnected. Prayer and fasting tend to go hand in hand, right? Now, when I talk about fasting, the tendency of a lot of Christians, a lot of Americanized Christians particularly, is to completely zone out. To completely turn off. Another reason I didn't preach on it last week, if I would have preached on pray, uh, fasting and giving in the same way, y'all wouldn't have heard a word I said. And the reason we tend to zone out on fasting is we tend to believe that, that fasting is for like the spiritually elite, right? And we, we tend to believe fasting is for like the super Christians. Like there's all of us down here and then there's the fasters up here, right? The fasters that do all the good stuff oh, way up here, right? And the reason we believe that is that we've bought into bare minimum Christianity, We've bought into bare minimum Christianity. We've bought into this, this Americanized understanding of Christianity where we go to the stock market and we want to bring peanuts and get back millions, right? When we go and we buy lottery tickets for, for however much a lottery ticket costs, hoping to get back hundreds of millions, right? And so what we do with Christianity is we come to Christianity and we, we say, I want to see how little I can put in and how much I can get out. I want to see how, how little I can invest and how much I can consume. How little I can do and how much and how richly and how, how vastly the Lord will bless me forever. And so we don't fast because we don't see that as a requirement. We don't, we don't fast because fasting doesn't hit the bare minimum, right? But what does Jesus say here? He says, when you fast. When you fast. When you fast. And so we see that Jesus understood two things. Jesus assumed you're fasting. Jesus assumed that his disciples would fast. Jesus assumed that they would, they would want to approach him and, and want to seek him in this way. But the other thing Jesus knew is that even in doing that, even in doing what we believe is something for the spiritually elite, even doing what we believe is something for the super Christian, that even in doing that, we can do it in a sinful way. We can do it in a way that is simple. Now, this morning we don't have time to get an in-depth view of fasting. That's going to come later on um, as, we, as we continue to preach through the scriptures. We'll get there. So what I want to do this morning is give you an overview. Because I found that the majority of Christians today really just don't know what it is. Don't, they didn't even know that was a responsibility. They didn't almost even know that was a thing, right? And so because Jesus says when you fast, that we're expected to fast... And that he gives us a warning to make sure that we don't fast incorrectly. I want to I just take a few seconds and ask some important questions about fasting. So that we can just have this, this broad understanding of what it is. So first of all, what is fasting? Fasting is when we abstain from something. Something that typically takes a large portion of our time. Something that typically takes a, a large portion of our affection and of our desire. And, of our, and, and, and kind of feeds an appetite. It's when we, we abstain from those things. We deprive ourselves of those things. In an effort to, to seek God's face or to repent of sin. If, if you want to think of it this way, it's almost like you, you take something that takes up a lot of time in your life and you cut that out so that you can build gaps for the Lord. So that, because you know all of us, if, like, if you're like me, like my schedule is from can to can every day. It is from before daylight to, uh, to after dark every day. I mean, I go home and I just like, pfft, just fall in the bed, right? And most of us are probably that way. 
There's not many gaps in there for us because we're, we're so scheduled, we're so regimented, we're so got to be here and got to be there. Well, what fasting is, is it's, it's you committing to cut out one of those significant portions of your day. You committing to cut out one of those significant portions that takes a lot of your time and a lot of your energy. It's cutting it out so that now you have a gap. You have a gap that what you would have spent your time doing this, now you spend your time seeking the Lord. Now, the interesting question is, is why would God have us fast? Why would God ask us, his people, to fast? I think, I think really we see it kind of as a twofold answer. I think the first thing that I want you to understand is that God designed the hum, uh, humans, his image bearers, to be where their body and their souls are very interconnected with one another. We don't have this platonic understanding of the, the body is evil and the soul is good and so we kill the body and help the soul. Like we don't do all of that, right? No, God built us so beautifully. God built us so remarkably that everything that we do is, is interconnected. And so what we are on the inside works its way on the outside. And what we are on, do on the outside works its way inside. So, so the, these things are, are continually moving in congruence with one another. And, and by the way, you're not just going to float around heaven, right? Okay, we're going to preach on this close to Easter time. You're not going to be floating around heaven like this little, little spirit cloud thing, okay? You're going to have a body in heaven, okay? Just, just so you know. Because God, God designed us that way. God, God built us that way so that, because they're, and they're interconnected. And so just as we commit our souls to the Lord, we commit our spirits to the Lord, we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him metaphorically, right? That when we fast, what that is essentially doing is showing that physically we're in line with where we are spiritually. That our, our bodies are aligning with our spirits. That our, our bodies are aligning with our, our souls. So just as we have submitted our spirit to the Lord, just as we have denied ourselves to the Lord, we are denying our bodies before the Lord. We're demonstrating that outwardly. Now, I think the other reason that we fast is because the Christian life is itself intended to be a fast. Think about what we do. Think about who we are. We deprive ourselves in this life because we know we're living for the next life, right? And so, the, so a fast is in and of itself an illustration, is in and of itself a microcosm of what it means to be a Christian. It means I deprive myself now because I know later is worth it. I do without now because I understand when I'm with him, none of that's going to matter. All of this is fleeting. All of this is vapor. All of this is going away. But he is going to re remain forever, and I'm going to be with him forever. So I will deprive myself now. I will not indulge myself now. I will not, I will not satisfy my every appetite now because I know when I'm with him, I will be utterly, eternally, infinitely satisfied forever. And so fasting is a demonstration of this. Now, we said fasting means to abstain, so it means to abstain from what? From what should you fast? Well, the Bible gives two, two things specifically, food and sex in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, I think if, you were, if, if I were to counsel you in fasting, I would, I would point you there first. That's where I would point you first. I think to, to fast spiritually, it, it, most always means, uh, it most always means food. It sometimes means sex, as Paul says. But I think we can extrapolate that principle down. Because what do those two things have in common? They have in common human appetite, don't they? They have in common human appetite. Those are cravings that we have. Those are, those are our longings that we have. Those are desires that we have. And so it's, it's us, when, when, when we fast from those things, it's us saying, I'm going to suppress that appetite because I hunger for the Lord. I'm going I'm to push those things back. I'm going to cut those things out so that I can, I can seek God himself. And so I think, you can, I think there's room here for you to cut out any appetite in your life. 
Anything that, that, that takes away large portions of your day. Anything that, that steals away a lot of your devotion. Now, that doesn't mean sinful things. You can't say, I'm going to fast from something sinful for a season because, well, brothers, you fast for that all the time. That's not a fast. That's, that's sin, okay? So you can't say, well, I'm going to stop watching porn for a few days. Not, that's not, no, stop it. Just, just stop it all together, right? It also doesn't mean that you abstain from trivial things, okay? So I, we've done fasts before. I've heard people say, well, I'm going to fast from strawberry ice cream. Well, thank you, brother. That's awesome. I'm sure that takes up a lot of your time. Unless you're like a strawberry ice cream maker, that's probably not like a big deal, right? Or I'm going to fast from the walking dead. Well, I'm sure the Lord was just blessed by that, you know? Excellent. No. And here's probably the way I would, I would sum it up best. The way I would sum it up best is what should you fast from? Probably from that which you most don't want to fast from. What, do you, what should you fast from? Probably that thing that your mind went to that you said, no, uh-uh, not that. Something else. Is it your food? Are you a slave to your stomach? Are you a slave to your appetites? Because the word says that the Lord is our portion and our cup. What is it in your life? What is it in your life that you say, I need that more than God? That's where you should build in the gaps. That's where you should fast. And so Jesus says, do it in a way that isn't ostentatious. Do it in a way that doesn't call, not like the hypocrites. He says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others. You know how I think you can do this best? And Aaron pointed this out this week. It's all about your timing. That we should, we should time our fasts in such a way that they're not just put out there for everybody to see. That we shouldn't fast on Thanksgiving so that when everybody says, they say, well, why aren't you eating? I'm fasting for the Lord. <laughs> we shouldn't fast when we gotta, when we got a lunch meeting with somebody so that they have to ask the questions, right? So it's, it's keeping ourselves out of circumstances where we're going to be asked about it. Now, if you're asked about it and it just happened, there's nothing you can do. At some point, you just describe it. But it's us making sure that we're building guardrails into our life, that we're building, we're, we're, we're scheduling ourselves and we're timing things in such a way that we're taking every precaution possible to keep from trying to promote our own godliness, even in our own minds. But this morning as we finish, I want to remind you that fasting is temporary. We fast in this life because we're going to be satisfied forever. The Lord is preparing for us a supper. The Lord is preparing for us a feast. And so right now, brothers and sisters, we fast. But one day and forever after that and forever after that, we will feast with him. Let me read to you Revelation 19 as we close. Revelation 19, starting in verse 6, says... Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the, our Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's us, brothers and sisters, has made herself ready. It was granted to her granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. 
Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Today we fast. Today we deprive ourselves. Today we do without. But we're going to a feast. Pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father,